Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. On the week of the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown in China comes another brutal smashing of pro-democracy protesters, this time in Sudan. Scores of people were killed, many more wounded, after security forces attacked the protest camp in the capital Khartoum. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the sudden plunge into violence is Eric Reeves, a longtime Sudan researcher and analyst, most recently a senior fellow at Harvard University. He's also authored two books on Sudan, including Compromising with Evil, an archival history of Greater Sudan, 2007 to 2012. Eric, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Good to be with you. The bloody repression of Sudanese protesters has been shocking in its brutality. Opposition members have rejected military rule since the army overthrew President Omar al-Bashar following 30 years of rule. Was the army expected to lead a peaceful transition to a civilian-run government? Is this that big of a surprise that the government would act in this way against the protesters? I think we need to distinguish between the various elements of the Sudanese government and particularly the security forces. The brutal crackdown on the protesters who gathered in a month-long, two-month-long sit-in outside army headquarters The people actually carried out the attack are part of what's called the Rapid Support Forces. These are essentially recycled Janjaweed militia from the early days of the Darfur genocide, which began in 2003. In 2013, Hamdan Daglo, nicknamed Hemeti, became head of the Rapid Support Forces and largely completed the military elements of the Darfur genocide. He was recognized by President Omar al-Bashir. He was uh, given ample weaponry, supplies, was well paid. And although officially included in the Sudan Armed Forces, Hameti was not put in the ordinary chain of command. What that means is that he runs what is essentially an independent army. They're the ones who Uh, have conducted uh, nearly all the really brutal violence we've seen over the last few days. They were the ones, uh, I was quite sure, um, when talks between the military council and civilians broke down two and a half weeks ago. These were the bad guys. These were the guys who brought the militia tactics of the Darfur genocide to the streets of Khartoum. And I think actually there are a great many regular army people, especially mid-level officers, who are appalled by uh, the rapid support forces and regard them as untrained, undisciplined, both true uh, thugs. You answered my next question about RSF training, but how well armed are they? What kind of military gear do they bring to battle? 
That's actually very, very interesting. You should ask that. Uh, I've been having over the last two days a series of discussions with uh, informed Sudanese about um, the level of armaments that the regular army has permitted the rapid support forces to acquire. So far, the most we've seen are um, lightly armored four-wheel drive vehicles, better than land cruisers, but not that much, and not armored personnel carriers. The armored personnel carriers, the tanks, the mobile artillery, all that remains in the hands of um, the Sudan Armed Forces. That means that should there be a civil war, and it becomes increasingly likely by the day, the army would have the upper hand if it were an army versus rapid support forces civil war. Now, there are any number of things that could make this uh, a very different sort of conflict, uh, and there's growing pressure on the military council as a whole, which includes both SAF and RSF elements. Uh, today, the African Union expelled uh, or at least suspended Sudan's membership in the Union. And Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who've been the big financial backers of the regime and now the junta, the military council, today trimmed their sales quite a bit. They've been uh, the ones to whom the, the leaders of the military council went to ensure that they would have backing uh, from the Saudis and the Emiratis and from Egypt as well, not financially uh, so helpful, but politically uh, a powerhouse in the region. Um, but so far, and I've looked at hours and hours and hours of social media over the last uh, couple of weeks, I've seen no armored personnel carriers or tanks in the street. Of course, it doesn't take much to crush a peaceful demonstration. Different story going up against a well-armed military. Any word on how Sudan's army is viewing the current situation? Might there be lower-level officers willing to rebel against the TMC and take on the RSF? There clearly are. Uh, I saw one account this morning. You know, we're, we're dealing with a situation in which the military council has shut down Internet access. So... Uh, aside from virtual private networks, VPNs, it's very difficult to get information out. Uh, requires a lot of contextual reading, a lot of background to uh, make sense of the details that do emerge. Um, but one interesting report had it that mid-level officers where, uh, where resentment of the rapid support forces is greatest have been fired, jailed, or sent out of Khartoum. Now, that's a, that's a very telling sign, and it shows a clear fear that, indeed, the army, the mid-level officers, and I'm talking mainly about majors, colonels, lieutenants, uh, and even more junior officers, uh, they're the ones who have borne the brunt of the wars that the regime has waged in South Sudan during that long civil war, in Darfur, in South Kordofan and Blue Nile. Uh, these are men who don't see the point of these endless wars that serve only the interests of the regime. And we've known for quite a while that um, there's a very, very healthy contingent of mid-level officers who are deeply unhappy with both the regime and especially with the rapid support forces and the conduct of Hameti and his, his RSF thugs.
Does the army have support from all around Sudan, or is it a situation where various regions are more focused on their own areas, and that's where their support lies, rather than in a national sense of a Sudanese army, such as what we see in Somalia? I think that's a hard question to answer because the military council is headed by a regular SAF general, General um, Abern, and he has behaved in a cynical, disingenuous, and uh, often despicable fashion. He's the one who led uh, Sudanese troops into Yemen to fight the Houthis, uh, a war, as I'm sure you know, uh, sponsored by the Saudis, and essentially a war conducted by atrocity crimes. Um, the rapid support forces under Hameti also were fighting in, um, in Yemen. Uh, so there's, there's a good deal of distrust of the generals. But I've also seen video footage before the internet outage in which lower-ranking troops uh, greeted the crowd, uh, protected them from the rapid support forces. So it's, it's difficult to know. Uh, early on, a retired brigadier general, a general who commanded a full brigade, said that he was appalled by uh, al-Bashir, his regime, and the conduct of the regime in responding to the uprising, which we need to remember began on December 19th. That's a long time ago. As you mentioned, the military council shut down the internet, and there has been very little information coming out of Sudan's other cities and towns. How strong is the opposition outside of Khartoum, and is there any word as to whether there have been crackdowns on opposition members in those areas? Yes, I'm a regular reader of Radio Dabanga, which is probably the best general source of news on Sudan there is. Um, and they regularly report on all parts of Sudan. They're focused on Darfur, but they focus on all parts of Sudan. And it's clear there have been rapid support forces atrocities committed elsewhere in Sudan. And that's not surprising. One of the most remarkable things about the uprising is how it cuts across regional geographic, ethnic, uh, tribal lines, professional lines that might have divided people, but in this overwhelming push towards democratization and civilian governance, it's produced a kind of cohesiveness that's been a marvel to watch, um, and cohesive all in its commit, also in its commitment to nonviolence. Uh, the, that commitment is very difficult to maintain when you have people firing live ammunition directly at you, um, when tear gas is fired inside hospitals in order to flush out uh, physicians who are operating on wounded protesters. Uh, very, very difficult circumstances, and yet the cohesion has been there and the commitment to nonviolence has been there. Uh, and it's one of the things that um, the uh, crackdown this or early this past Monday morning, I think, was designed. It was designed to provoke people into responding violently. They did not, uh, and I think people well knew that were they to have responded to violence with violence in kind, it would have been uh, a massacre on a much greater scale. Even so, we can be sure that many more than 200 people have lost their lives. Uh, some were thrown into the Nile River, bound, cut with machetes, uh, bloated bodies floating up, fished out. Uh, it's, uh, it's really been a horror show in Sudan over the last three days plus. Um, and 
while concentrated in Sudan, uh, we've seen evidence of brutality uh, in, in, in other parts of uh, the country. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the violent crackdown on Sudanese protesters with Eric Reeves, a longtime Sudan researcher and analyst, and most recently a senior fellow at Harvard University. It's been reported that Sudanese airline pilots and other airport workers were forced at gunpoint to get back to work. And I've seen on Twitter many family members have not been able to even contact those workers. How dangerous of a time is it for Sudan's professional sector? For a relatively small worker population like professional pilots, it's extremely dangerous. But in some ways, a more significant story as the uprising moves to a commitment to civil disobedience is the work stoppage. You probably have not seen this in West Kordofan, in which oil workers simply stopped working for the energy company uh, that controls the uh, oil infrastructure there. Now, it may be one thing to put a gun to a pilot's head and make him fly, but when you have a big dispersed distant workforce, you don't have the resources to make them go back to work. And the Sudanese economy, and this has not been sufficiently reported in my view, the Sudanese economy has collapsed. It's not collapsing, it has collapsed. The inflation rate is utterly intolerable. It's second only to Venezuela's um, in the world. Um, There's not enough food to eat because there's not enough hard currency in the central bank to import it. Medicines are in short supply. Um, The fuel for uh, pumping water, uh, refined petroleum products indeed of all sorts, uh, are scarce because there's no hard currency to uh, import them. Uh, This is a country that economically is collapsing. And one thing I don't think the generals thought through when they replaced al-Bashir with a transitional military council was that they now own this economic catastrophe. Uh, A civilian government might be given some leeway, some patience uh, by people who are deeply frustrated, deeply angry at the privations, the unemployment, uh, the abuse they've suffered for so many years. Um, That's why the civilian um, uh, leadership proposed a four-year transition period. The army countered with a two-year transition period. And there was an initial compromise of three years. But when it came to Uh, the staffing of the executive body that would really have the the true power, the veto power, Uh, the two sides did not agree. The army insisted on having a predominance. Civilians insisted on having a predominance. That's when talks broke down a little over two weeks ago. And that made um, the move towards violence, in my view, inevitable. The TMC has said that it would like to have elections, and that has been rejected by the opposition group at this time. What do you see as the next move for the TMC? What do they have to do in order to prevent this current crackdown turning into a potential civil war? It's largely out of their hands. Um, I don't believe they control Hameti. Uh They don't control the rapid support forces because they're uncontrollable. They're losing support from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which aren't going to risk that much for Saudi Arabia. They like the idea of a uh, non-democratic regime that doesn't respect human rights and 
doesn't really contemplate fair elections uh, to its immediate south. Uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, is just across the Red Sea from Sudan. But they are not prepared to invest that much political capital. And they're going to squander a whole lot of political capital if they come out too strongly in support of the regime. So despite the visits by the transition, uh, the military council leaders to Egypt, to the Emirates, to Saudi Arabia, uh, they're all trimming their sails today, uh, especially after the outburst of international criticism that came yesterday. Um, the Human Rights Watch, which rarely pushes for sanctions, pushed for targeted sanctions against the military council yesterday. Um, the I know uh, from a contact on Capitol Hill in Washington that lawmakers uh, on Capitol Hill are uh, contemplating legislation that would uh, impose targeted sanctions. Uh, it would be very difficult for President Trump to veto such a, a bill. Um, there's And pressure is going to grow. Um, I think the Europeans, who've been very weak to this point, realize that if there's civil war in Sudan, the whole idea of staunching the flow of African migration to the European continent goes out the window. The Europeans have played a very dirty game with the al-Bashir regime, essentially paying it to stop the flow of African migration to the African continent. But the money has ended up going to none other than Hameti, who, as a small arms survey based in Geneva has shown authoritatively, has engaged in human trafficking, enslavement, kidnapping, all sorts of abuse, and had the nerve to ask for more money for the same uh, illegal criminal efforts. Um, the European Union uh, made a deal with the devil, but they just didn't know how uh, evil a devil they were making a deal with. And uh, this, uh, the support for Hameti that they gave uh, is going to look mighty foolish if he is the catalyst for a civil war that sends hundreds of thousands of Sudanese fleeing. Al Jazeera has reported that Hamedi has promised to send Sudanese troops to help the Saudis and UAE lead the fight against the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen. Do you think there is any chance that Sudan could be the next country to become a proxy battleground for Riyadh and Tehran? No, I don't think so. I, I think it would be logistically alone a step far too far. Um, this, the Saudis especially the Emiratis to a lesser degree, are very appreciative of the fact that Sudan has broken with uh, Iran, which had been a longtime strategic ally, allied itself with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, uh, and is now fighting the Houthis uh, on the ground in Yemen. But there's no way that the Saudis uh, are going to become involved uh, in uh, a war in, in Sudan. Uh, what we might see is there's some disputed territory between Egypt and Sudan on the northeastern border. That might well be seized if there is civil war in Sudan, but I doubt Egypt is, um, is going to become involved. It, it depends in part upon how the armed forces, considered in all their diversity, um, align. Uh, we not only have the rapid support forces and the regular army, but we have the National Intelligence and Security Service, an extremely powerful, well-funded 
uh, intelligence and terrorist organization. There are other uh, ad hoc militia groups operating in um, in Khartoum and elsewhere in Sudan. Uh, it's it's it would be a very very messy fight to step into, and I doubt that uh, either the Egyptians or the Saudis have any stomach for it. You mentioned earlier the African Union suspending Sudan's membership in the Union if there isn't a move towards an elected civilian government. How will other African nations respond? Seems like most in the region already have their hands full with Somalia, with that contingent struggling to control al-Shabaab. Well, in a way, it it doesn't matter in the short term. Uh, It's not going to affect the behavior of the junta, as I'll call the military council. Uh, But in the long term, it's really important. Sudan has a external debt well in excess of $50 billion. Now, $50 billion for a nation that can't even service that kind of debt is crushing. And it cannot um, obtain any debt relief from anyone so long as they are suspended from the African Union. So I'm not sure if the military council has thought at all about how grave the economic problems are confronting Sudan. But if they would only take a minute, they'd realize uh, that they are in a world of hurt. We saw the Arab Spring spread across the Middle East and North Africa earlier this decade. Do you think Sudan will see the same thing with the protest blowing up into a civil war? How likely do you think that will happen? I think a civil war, sadly, is more likely by the day. I would call attention, though, to what I think is a salient difference between the earlier Arab Spring ventures and what's what we've seen uh, since December 19th. 2018 in Sudan. Never in the history of Sudan or in any other Arab country has there been such long, sustained, cohesive, nonviolent commitment to change, to democratic change, to a move to civilian governance. It has been exemplary in all ways. Uh, Occasionally, there are tactical disagreements between some of the leaders of um, the civilian uprising, but this has been a model of uh, how to throw off a repressive regime. If it fails, the failure will be historic in implication. If it succeeds, it will be even more historic in implication. But we just don't know at this moment how it's going to break. So many uncertainties, and we can only hope for a peaceful resolution for the Sudanese. Eric, thank you so much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Glad to do it. We've been joined by Eric Reeves, a longtime Sudan researcher and analyst, most recently a senior fellow at Harvard University. He also authored two books on Sudan, including Compromising with Evil, an archival history of Greater Sudan 2007 to 2012. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.